So even if you want to ignore all these problems, let's say you're just a football fan and you only care about football, well, they're also destroying the sport as we know it too. Man City, PSG and Chelsea. There you have three of the last four Champions League finalists. In fact, they'll all be in and around the final for the rest of the time because of the golden thread that connects all three clubs. Dirty, rotten, foul, oil money. Almost everyone wants to sponsor football. Insurance companies, sports brands, beverages. But there is one industry that overtrumps all the others. The energy industry. In particular, companies involved in fossil fuels, like oil and gas. State-run clubs are joyless. Off the pitch, they have appalling human rights records and continuously rank near the bottom of the Human Freedom Index. And gas money is everywhere in football. But why is that so? It is obvious why Nike or Adidas sponsor football. They want their logos and products to be seen by fans, who then go to the store to buy the football boots of Messi and Ronaldo. But are you going to buy oil from Abu Dhabi because you're a Man City fan? Or gas from Russia because you like watching the Champions League? To understand why oil and gas companies pump billions into football, we need to dig a bit deeper. Welcome back. If you aren't aware, this is a Breaking the Lens production in collaboration with the Front Post Football Podcast. In the last episode, we talked about Newcastle and their controversial ties with the Saudi government, African football's forever tendency to cast itself among political shadows, and the Qatar World Cup, which of course has plenty of geopolitical threads that people are unravelling amidst the commencement of the tournament. In this episode, we're broadening our scope once again, and we'll probe into the worlds of Chinese and Venezuelan football, and the effect that years of geopolitical involvement and interference has had in these countries' footballing development. Venezuela is a complex state. It's almost been a figurehead for modern political satire at one point, and after Hugo Chavez, Nicolas Maduro became president of Venezuela and as his reign progressed, as did his government's authoritarian approach. Venezuela became the biggest jailer of journalists in South America, and as protesters' voice were crushed in the midst of the humanitarian crisis, millions fled the country. Since 2015, over 6 million Venezuelans are reported to have left the country. I first came here in 2019, when I was writing the book, and then the book was published in 2020. And then, yeah, last year we, we had the... You know, we were looking to move to South America in general. I lived in Southampton till I was 20 and then lived in London, in Croydon, South London, which is where my girlfriend's from and now my wife. Same person, not two different people. Um, and then yeah, moved to Venezuela in, in August. So my name is Jordan Florit. I've uh, been working on, on Venezuelan football from um, a journalism perspective since uh, 2019, so into my fourth season, if you like, of, of covering the Venezuelan football. As somebody that had always wanted to, to write a book, but always wanted a reason for writing a book, I wasn't going to you know, sit down and brainstorm ideas. I found myself quite naturally feeling inspired and motivated to, to write a book uh, about Venezuela, but with it being ultimately enlightening people as to the situation Venezuela is in now, um, why and, and why it's in that situation and, and the effect that football plays on culture and, and, and the effect that the situation of a country, be it politics or, or demography, plays on football in reverse. So it's, it's sort of like an anthropological book and, and a football book on Venezuela in general, rather than like a, a potted history of football in the country. 
Oh, cool. Right. And, and uh, one question I wanted to ask you there is um, you kind of alluded there to how people might um, approach writing about Venezuelan football from a voyeuristic standpoint of the, the politics of the country. Sometimes, uh, you know, it can get it can get tiresome because, you know, there's so much more to Venezuela than just the economic crisis or the fuel shortage or shortages in general. And, you know, there's so much more to, to Venezuela than, you know, Chavismo or, or the, the fact the president's Nicolas Maduro. You know, the way I often describe it to, to other people and sort of one of my mo- main motivations for writing the book back in 2019 is, you know, as an English person from 2016 to well into 2020, the only thing a non-English person wanted to speak to me about was Brexit. Like, you know, my life, my my being um, to people outside of England became defined as Brexit. And, you know, that is nothing to do with me or my identity and also misses so much more of what's going on in England. And, you know, similarly for Americans between 2016 and, and 2020, the, the only thing that non-Americans wanted to speak to Americans about was Trump. And, you know, for Venezuelans for so long, you know, 15 or, or 20 years, most Venezuelans, when they meet somebody from outside of Venezuela, are going to be asked or, or going to have a conversation struck up along the same lines. It's always going to be about the, the politics, um, essentially. China's football dream fairing. One of the goals laid out by President Xi Jinping in 2011 was for the country to win and host a World Cup by 2050. But China has reached only one World Cup before in 2002 when it failed to score a goal or win a point in three group games. China wants to, I mean, China's, as you probably noticed, I mean, China's been putting a lot of effort into raising its global profile. I mean, China's frankly pretty messed up for a long time. It was really poor, the economy was backward, and so on and so forth. And then they had the reform and opening up, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s. In my interview here with Cameron Wilson, the editor and founder of Wildies Football, he makes a point about the Chinese economy opening up. Uh, the opening up of the Chinese economy happened in 1978 and it attracted huge amounts of foreign inflows from Western companies shifting their operations to China. And the rate of China's industrial growth is pretty unmatched in history. Within a few decades, after initiating a lot of economic reform, China expanded and became the biggest economy in the world with the largest manufacturing sector. As part of that, they think that sport and success is something which can help China gain more prestige in the world. So they've had a lot of success in the Olympics, but Olympics is not quite the same as football. I don't think it's not as powerful uh, in terms of what it can bring a country. So basically, they want to be successful in football because that's a way to express China's soft power and China's position in the world if they can be much better at football. Because football is the one truly global sport. It's not really anything else which comes close to it. 
Six-year-old Choi Yuhan is among those training here. He's been playing the sport as soon as he could kick a ball. He currently attends football lessons four times a week, splitting his time between this academy and another one closer to home. In May, Beijing announced plans to build at least 16 football cities by 2025. Each must have at least two professional clubs, a national-level youth training center, and one football pitch for every 10,000 people. But it doesn't resolve some of the long-standing issues plaguing the sport. Chinese football is riddled with corruption and mismanagement. In the last two years alone, 22 football clubs closed due to financial problems. That includes the reigning Chinese Super League champion, the Jiangsu Football Club. Data from the Chinese Football Association shows the majority of Chinese football clubs facing losses. China's got a way. China, uh, historically, China's, uh, the, way they, the way they teach things is just basically do the same things over and over again. Like repetition, like really just kind of put your nose to the grindstone and just keep going for it. It's, it's good. In some ways, it's admirable because it takes a lot of de dedication. In other ways, it's not a very smart way to do it. And it's just like doing it through through brute strength and, and just through sheer repetitiveness. So football, which requires really creative individuals, people who are able to play in a team and spot opportunities in a fast-moving sport environment, the way the Chinese education system works, it doesn't really produce people who are good at that. Produces people who are good at doing what they're told and good at copying stuff. Doesn't really produce people who are critical thinkers or people who are who are creatively minded. I mean, it's not that these people don't exist at all. It's just that it doesn't encourage the production of that. In the production for this podcast, I reached out to Alfie from HITC Sevens. He made a video about the Chinese Super League and its decline, and he specifically talked about Jiangsu FC, who were the Chinese Super League champions. Thank you to Alfie for giving me permission to use this clip on the podcast. Uh, here's Alfie talking about Jiangsu FC. Jiangsu are, or were, owned by Suning Appliance Group, who are 20% shareholders of Suning.com Limited. Suning.com is one of China's largest retailers with over 20 billion US dollars in annual revenue. And following their success in the retail space, the company branched out into one or two other businesses like streaming and marketing. Now they are looking to strip back from other industries though, having just sold 23% of their assets, which the company says is a long-term strategy so they are able to maintain a laser-like focus on their core retail business. Ending their investment in Jiangsu FC and the club's associated women's team is thought to be part of this streamlining. Would one of China's largest companies and one of China's wealthiest individuals, who is a former politician himself, have wanted out of a team that just won the Chinese Super League? And why wasn't there another business or billionaire just waiting to step in and fulfill a lifelong dream of owning a football club? Or at least, trying to court favour with China's supreme leader? Well, one reason might be that owning a Chinese football club isn't a very profitable business. In order to attract players, clubs have had to offer foreign players eye-watering contracts, whilst revenues haven't risen as hoped. I mean, it's, yeah, it's quite complicated. The, the foundation is that Chinese football is not a part of social fabric in China. It, it's, it doesn't make money. So how does it survive? It survives because local companies, home conglomerations, or even big, big Chinese corporations or um, conglomerations, they basically prop it up. And they do that because they get political favors from it. So if your company is, say, a massive property developer, if you prop up the city football team, 
then maybe your company will be first in the line to get a contract to develop a massive new part of the city and earn a shit ton of money from building new shopping centres or residential uh, area or compound or whatever. So basically, football in China is really about politics. So companies support it because they get political benefits from it. Um, so when they announced, I think it was back in 2015, they announced this big plan to overhaul football, loads and loads of companies who wanted to get political advantage, who thought they could get in the good books of the president or just with the, the Chinese political establishment in general, they thought, this is great, let's just pour all our money into it. So that's basically what happened. Um, but of course, the end result wasn't very good. You've seen like players come play China who were actually pretty good players who were getting paid insane amounts of money but this money is just getting burned it didn't it didn't really help Chinese football it didn't it maybe put more bums on seats and it maybe increased the profile but it did nothing to really help the standards at least the standard on the pitch was good because of the foreigners but it didn't improve the standard of the Chinese players so in the end the government decided this was basically embarrassing China which is quite understandable because in some ways it was and they brought in all these rules which restricted transfers, restricted wages. And in the end, a lot of the companies which were putting lots of money in if Chinese football are now taking it out because they don't see anything in it for them. And now the game has kind of gone quite a little bit backwards, to be honest. Although in some ways it's good because they, there was a lot, an awful lot of money being wasted and it wasn't really helping develop the game very um, further. Yeah, so to, to, to speak on Venezuela, my understanding of, of, of geopolitics to, you know, to just break it down to then explain its, its relationship with Venezuela is like, you know, the, the effects of geography um, on politics and, and international relations. And then from that, how the entities or the, the product of geography is then controlled on an international scale or a national scale in relation to politics. So for Venezuela, you know, one of the most easily identifiable um, aspects of, of Venezuela as a country is oil. And obviously oil is probably the biggest or one of the biggest geopolitical currencies in the world. Um, and that has more than certainly had an effect on Venezuelan football over the years, but not in the traditional sense that we now know it in Europe, where oil and football normally means money. Like that normally means your club is oil rich and you're splashing the cash. That hasn't really happened in Venezuela, certainly not in a comparable way to Europe. There's been times where, you know, clubs have been bankrolled by the state-owned oil company PDVSA, but that hasn't made it a continental powerhouse that has gone on to win the Copa Libertadores or, or anything like that. They haven't invested in bringing in a load of Brazilian players or Argentinian players or foreign players in general to to just batter the league. Yeah, so there was like a like a football boom, like they call it like the Vino Tinto boom here, Vino Tinto being the nickname of the, the national team because their shirts are the colour of, of red wine. And um, that sort of happened in the, the 2000s and the sort of the crest of that, that wave was in 2007 when Venezuela hosted the Copa America um, for the first time. And, you know, one of the reasons why Venezuela was able to host the Copa America uh, is because it was a wash with with oil money. Venezuela made a lot of money uh, off of oil in the early 2000s, particularly because of you know the the Iraq War, for example, and, and oil from that region being you know a lot 
was the the production slowed right down, the prices went up, the the the, the worldwide per gallon price was at an all time high, and and Venezuela was the one of if not the biggest exporter of oil in that time. So there was a lot of money going around, and how that affected football was through Venezuela getting the hosting rights for Copa America and every major sporting event, be it a World Cup or or the Olympics, you know, there's unavoidably always a political reason as to why that country wants to host that tournament. And it was no different with Venezuela and a lot of money went into building new stadiums. But first, Copper America has come to Venezuela for the very first time. It's the only Spanish-speaking South American country where baseball is more popular than football, and they've never qualified for the World Cup. But they've now been given the chance to host South America's premier international football event. The Cup has already cost four to five times more than originally planned. The tournament should have been ready much earlier without any last-minute problems. Too many of the people in the organizing committees were there for political reasons and not because they were properly qualified as you see in in south africa recently and i think also in brazil you get these brand new stadiums that uh really are far too big for the long-lasting need of course for an international tournament you need big stadiums but afterwards this is a country that you know for football struggles to fill 15,000 seater stadiums um and venezuela has been left with these expensive stadiums to maintain that are like 40,000 or, or more and, and, and never really have more than 10,000 fans in it uh, at any time. And that's for the big games in the year. The problem became abundantly clear that there was like no long-term plan for this. It, there was a wave that was ridden for a while, but then the, the economic crisis that, that happened in Venezuela following Hugo Chavez's death in 2014 and 2017 being particular low points in Venezuela's recent history of, you know, riots throughout the year, you know, capacity uh, attendances dropped in these, these huge all-seater capacity stadiums. And you were left with like, almost like an empty product, like a football league that was sort of functioning to, to keep up appearances, um, but was sort of really in a rut. Um, and, you know, this <clears throat> is largely down to firstly, the, the infrastructure and then the investment into football in general, but then the the situation in the country making it, uh, you know, a hard product to to market. You know, there's very few people that write about Venezuelan football who aren't Venezuelan on a consistent basis. So when you get the odd article spring up in someone's portfolio, forty percent of it is going to be building a backstory or, or giving some context. Um, as to the situation in Venezuela, which is valuable because it obviously helps people understand why Venezuelan football is in the situation it is. Um, but it, it, it leads to just a, a repetition narrative. Um, and, you know, football has fluctuated. It's made advances. It's also suffered setbacks in the past 20 years, some of which is heavily, um, you know, affected by the situation in the country. Uh, and, and other things that... Um, the, the main effects are nothing to do with the situation in the country but the perception in the football world um, you know for example the view that Venezuelan football players will come cheaply or for free you know in the long run that that, that harms the league because it's not uh, it's not monetizing its product for example
we, we haven't even exploited the full potential of the CAF Champions League. Um, it would work in Europe, it would work in people in places where they they are able to court you know, big money from governments and other hedge funds and wealth, sovereign wealth funds and you know things like things of the sort. But in Africa, we haven't reached that, or we haven't exploited that particular potential with only a few clubs, even Simba, I don't think they can be able to, uh, as much as they are very enthusiastic about the idea, I don't think they can, uh, if the initial numbers we had was $20 million that, you know, every team needed to to fork out. Uh, I, I don't I don't think, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too sure whether they can be able to afford that kind of money. And uh, I believe there was a lot of unexploited potential in, you know, in, in, in CAF Champions League. We've never really capitalized on it. We've never promoted it to Africans. We've never, you know, we most of the time people are just caught off guard. Like today there was a CAF Champions League match. Nobody saw it on TV. Uh, and I don't think uh, having a Super League is a quick fix, panacea, uh, to, to resolve all the problems that are in Africa. Gianni Infantino is hedging and uh, he's preparing post-Qatar, uh, post-Qatar projects because he knows once the uh, once you know once the World Cup is over, then the revenue from Qatar will diminish. And I think so. He's trying to prepare or to to position Saudi Arabia to have ready projects for them to 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 finance. Uh, one of them being, you know, the Super League. Of course, he's taken over CAF. So, and and the money will be there. So we are, we are not too sure whether what is happening with Russia and Ukraine, whether Saudi Arabia will still be interested to make those moves. Uh, you know, because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, suddenly everyone is very conscious about what these countries, are, their, their particular involvement in football. Uh, so we don't know whether they, they'll still be motivated to, to 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 move on with particularly the idea of the biennial World Cup. It was still a Saudi Arabia fronted uh, and financed proposal, and we believe that uh, even the the, the, the Super League uh, was the revenue from or for to operationalize the Super League was going to come from the same uh, from the same sources. So a lot has happened within the last two weeks, uh, which has left people, uh, obviously, it has exposed football. We've seen how fragile football is. So, you know, one day with a government intervention, you know, club, a club could be dissolved, a club could be rendered without fans, you know. In the last episode, my interviewee here, Francis Gaitho, talked about the potential of the CAF Super League. It's an idea that's been floated around by Gianni Infantino, has full support of FIFA and Gianni Infantino. Francis talks about the dangers of that and the potential that the CAF Super League has of further isolating football from Africans. As you know, we watched oh, the Africa Cup of Nations, which, which was in Cameroon, had no participation of uh, domestic free-to-air TV. So... They might have you might have seen it it was in every other country but in africa it was only being viewed on being which is a digital pay, pay, pay tv and and super sport which is uh, operated by dstv so we are we are not having uh, participation of uh, free-to-air broadcasters where the numbers are and because uh, of the economic 
the economic disparities in this continent uh, when you put it exclusively on pay tv while the money flows on your end uh, you on the other hand deny the masses uh, you deny them the the opportunity to watch their matches so yeah africa super league will be uh, just yet another uh, project to isolate football from africans and uh, it's already starting uh, you know as, as i've told you with the tv and then now we have uh, you know somebody in fifa who is ready to lend an ear to all these shadowy characters and give them validation in form of uh, of, 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 of of an african super league where they think that their interest and their primary interest is not football really is just uh is now another opportunity to position themselves whatever they want to be in future whether it's in politics whether it's in CAF or whether it's in FIFA they think that now this is a shortcut and uh, we, we've isolated everyone else now we're in our own members club and uh, let's let's move ahead another individuals uh, we're seeing Simba uh, the Simba Simba club and and we are seeing the officials you know you can look at their twitter handle and you look at what's happening to their club they are not correlated but you can see them taking positions especially in the super league and uh, it's more uh, you can't see the you or you can't feel the technical component of their you know of their tweets you can't feel them recruiting to win the super league so they are they are in that super league because it provides a good opportunity for them to do their CSR or to do their imaging or to do their spot washing because they have this larger than life individual who is behind the club uh, who, uh, who who probably acquired the shares of that club in a, in a very phantom and vague manner uh, but but because of the political natures of some of some of these countries like Tanzania you're not able people are not able to speak out uh, you know democracy is an illusion I think people are becoming a lot more aware of um, of this kind of close relationship between geopolitics and football. Uh, do you think people are becoming more conscious of this and are becoming more defensive of this? I'm not just talking about Venezuela, but just in general, do you think that's um, a kind of social phenomenon in football that um, that fans are becoming more defensive of football because they see this they see this emerging relationship between geopolitics and football? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I th- I think it was like a particularly in, in England, I think it was a a will a willing or a willful unconsciousness. You know, people were happy to turn a blind eye to uh, you know, where Chelsea's funding was coming from. Obviously, people as football fans will always do, will find a reason to discredit another team's success, whether that success has been bought or whether it's been developed. Um, you know, football fans by nature are always going to play down other teams' successes. So, you know, during Chelsea's ownership by Abramovich, you know, they've been nicknamed Chelsea. They've been told they bought their success. People will point at Frank Lampard and, well, Frank Lampard was bought by West Ham. But like, you know, John Terry being like the last youth product really to go and play a load of first team appearances for Chelsea. Reese James has come through in recent years, although I I don't know if he's had his whole youth development in Chelsea's academy, but you know, they, people have pointed out that Chelsea haven't developed youth in that time as another uh, proof that they've just bought their success. 
Um, but ultimately, Roman Abramovich never really faced any actual meaningful opposition to his ownership of Chelsea. Now Newcastle are owned by essentially Saudi Arabian state or a mirror company for the Saudi Arabian state. Manchester City uh, have their ownership. But like I said, for a long time, people, I believe, they haven't been not conscious of the relationship between between politics and geopolitics and football, but they've been choosing to turn a blind eye. And I think now it's becoming impossible to do that. And I know people, a lot of people say, you know, keep politics out of football. And one of their more saner arguments for that is that football is their, their escapism. It's where they go away, go to get away from, you know, politics. And that's true for me too. Like I, I go to football to watch football to as a form of escapism, but then football is, is my entire life. And it's more than just like 90 minutes. And it's becoming more and more difficult for fans to avoid the relationship, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how thing it can change. Um, I think the only real difference that, that football can make is by the level of accountability it can show itself and how much it can hold other entities and other political entities to, to account. Um, you know, football has a very strong standing in in society. And the reason why I love football so much and, and spend so much of my time on it is because I do think it's more than just a game. And I think football is such a powerful way to understand a country and, and society and culture and it, it it's such a in many places in the world such a staple of everyday life more than just the game it can take a position of accountability and it can hold others to account and I think that's the the, the best it can do in this current situation because I think particularly now with this is a very poignant time to be having this conversation because of what's happening with um, Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions on Abramovich. I, I think that's that, that's what it has to do. It has to be accountable, whether you, anyone agrees with it or, or not. <laughs>